Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Okay. Welcome to Nature Biotechnology's first Rounders podcast. My name is Brady Huggett. I am the host of this show. And um, how are you? I'm good. New York is better. After our terrible spike, we have managed to knock the virus down and uh, keep it down. Mostly people are social distancing out there. Mostly the masks are on. Uh, I'm kind of proud. Fingers crossed. But uh, our office is not yet open, which means I'm barred from the studio. And so this interview is done again through a video interface. Um, it works, as I've said, it works. But you know, New York is a loud city. It's hard to find a quiet spot. Uh, this is summer. You know, you have to shut the AC off in order to record these. So I was recording this one. It just kept getting hotter and hotter, and the sun was going down and slanting through the window and sort of blinding me in one eye. And I just thought, oh, I miss the days of me and a guest across the table and two mics. I miss doing these face-to-face. They're supposed to be face-to-face. They're better face-to-face. And I look forward. I look forward to, uh, to going back to that. So who's the guest? The guest is Nubar Afayan, the CEO and founder of Flagship Pioneering. Um, we discussed his upbringing. He was born in Beirut and lived in Lebanon until his family fled the Lebanese Civil War. And we talked about um, how the mindset of an immigrant, the mindset of a refugee, how that is applicable to entrepreneurship. And we talked about what it takes. What does it take to truly innovate? Not just, hey, I'm, I'm going to start a company, but what does it take to build a company based around a brand new set of knowledge? What does it take to conceive of a company never before conceived of and then build it? And how do you do that systematically, which is what Flagship is trying to do? We, we talked about that. And we did, of course, talk about uh, the pandemic. Um, you know, Nubar is also a co-founder of Moderna, which is developing a vaccine for SARS-CoV-2. So we did discuss that a little too. So let's let's pick the conversation up here where he and I are talking about um, the amount of speculation that scientists are being asked to do in the face of so much being unknown about um, COVID-19 and, and SARS-CoV-2. Uh, anything else that you should know? I don't think so. So here it is, your first Rounders podcast with Nubar Afayan. Listen up. You know, when, you, exactly. when, you, when you're given a new reality, 
you know, speculating on whether a new type of vaccine is going to be safer or less safer, whatever, it's, 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 you know, speculation. I don't know. I never thought that science and speculation had a lot to do with each other, but I'm learning that apparently it does. <laughs> they do, yeah. Um, so the other thing I, I, I uh, realized is that you were born in Beirut. I was born in Beirut, yes. Yeah. So are you, do you still have family there? Or are you in touch with, like, you know, what's happened? I don't explosion? have family that's left there because my, I had, um, I'm of Armenian origin and Armenians have basically been uh, kind of circling the world, trying to find a place where they take for more than a, a generation or two. And Beirut was one such place that we had ended up in for a couple of generations. And when the civil war hit, uh, many, many, if not most Armenians ended up leaving. Uh, and so, you know, I, what little family I had there to begin with uh, is no longer there. And uh, so, so, but I have obviously uh, friends and, and cultural roots there. And, and, and so it's obviously, I was there a year ago, I was there three years ago, but I was not there for the 40 years before that. Well, let's let's uh, let's I actually want to ask about that, because I think, um, you know, from what I was able to find is that you were fairly old when when your family moved away. So you spent, you know, formative years there. I did spend formative years there. I was a teenager uh, when I left and, and it was quite, quite difficult period uh, towards the end of uh, well, the last uh, nine months or so or a civil war. So I, I lived through kind of a period of time where where the city that I grew up in and idolized was fairly well destroyed back in 75. Uh, and uh, that was the beginning of what ended up being an eight-year civil war. We left about six months into the active part of it. Uh, but, you know, seeing people, dead people on the street and seeing bombs go off across the street from you and across the, the town, you know, over a long period of time. And, you know, I keep, I mean, of course, it, it does affect you because Right now, you know, people are freaking out over not going to school over a pandemic. Imagine not going to school over a war. So it's a completely different feeling. So, so your first, uh, I don't know, 12 years or so, it was like any other normal sort of upbringing, and then everything just took a sharp turn. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I wouldn't say, I would say that the neighborhood has been... Um, you know, kind of a rough neighborhood all along. Um, but, but so there were signs of it being, but it was not unsafe. I mean, that's for sure. It was not unsafe. In 73, there was a war between Syria and Israel, which basically played out on the Mediterranean Sea right outside where we lived in Beirut. So we used to watch F-16s shutting down Russian planes in front of us. Like a bit, the, the old version of a video game used to be a live version of airplanes chasing each other, shooting each other down. So we saw that in 73, but then in 75, it was, you know, full out. No, it was, it was, it was, it was a rough neighborhood, but it was a unusual city before and it's been destroyed over and over again, including a few weeks ago. All right. So you're saying that you're growing up and you're sort of like you're defining your last memories of Beirut were buildings torn down, blown up, bodies in the streets and your family being like, we have got to get out of here. Yeah, yeah, yes, that's right. And then, yeah, I ended up in Montreal, hadn't seen snow before, and so that's where I grew up. By the way, are we? Are you recording, or are, is this a preamble? Oh, yeah. No, it's on. It's it's on. Yeah. Okay. I'm I'm kind of curious about you know I've read some other some other some like features on you and and you've talked about the immigration experience 
and sort of link that to entrepreneurism. But I also want to think about um, sort of what that does to a child to be like, oh, everything is really precarious. Everything is very dangerous all of a sudden. Right, we have to flee right. and go someplace else. Like w- when you get to Canada, what is your mindset about, yeah. I don't know, life and, and education exactly. and everything else? No, you're, you're very astute to, to raise the issue. I look, it did definitely form my, my personality, my, my mindset. Um, you know, I've long, long described and in and, and, and the classes I've taught at MIT and, and Harvard Business School now more recently, of course, you know, basically entrepreneurship courses for many years and innovation courses. And one of the things I've long said is that my sense of a, of, of a entrepreneurial mindset, or even for that matter, an extreme innovation mindset is, is, is to be a paranoid optimist. And then this duality of paranoia and optimism is an incredibly important in my view you can't aspire to be that but if you if you have that kind of duality it certainly does help navigate the uncertainty and the sudden changes in the environment uh, the dynamism of such uh, such spaces so so yeah i mean you know when i came to montreal um you know everything was new and uh, fortunately i had a good education back in, in beirut so that new english quite quite almost fluently french knew oh, kind of enough to get along. Yeah, I mean, in, in Beirut, they taught you four languages. You know, I learned Armenian, Arabic, and French, and English, and nobody bothered to ask whether that was good to feed all those languages into unsuspecting children's brains. And so people just did that. And so that ended up, little did I know how much it would help in an immigrant kind of lifestyle, because, you know, Montreal was quite, quite francophone when we got there and became more so after we got there. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, but but you know, one of the things it does is it just makes you kind of perceive the world around you um, in a in a bit more of a lonely way. It, you don't have a country and a community and a tribe to kind of help you figure this out. So you have your family, and then you have your own. You develop your own ability to figure this out, and very little is taken for granted. And and. You know, I didn't realize much of that, by the way, until a few years ago when I, well, based on the, the philanthropy work I'm involved with, which involves a lot of refugee-related things, I started realizing that a lot of the mindsets that I was perceiving are mindsets that I grew up with. In fact, I didn't even realize until I went back and, and looked at it that when we immigrated to Canada, we immigrated basically based on a, a status that the Canadian government gave us of being persecuted, you know, effectively refugees in the sense that we escaped the civil war uh, because we, our lives were threatened and Canada took us in, in that situation. I didn't feel that way. My parents never really kind of portrayed it that way. But in reality, that's, that's, that's what, what it was. That's what it was. Yeah. Right. So and how, how big was your family? So, you know, you said you didn't have a tribe, but your family was your parents, we your have, brothers we and have, sisters. We, I have two other brothers. Uh, one of one of whom is a business, uh, kind of runs his own business up in Montreal. He still lives there, and another one is a theoretical physicist and who lives in the Bay Area. Uh, and then my parents, and then we had a, a quite an influential person in my life. And everybody has influential people. In our case, it was a my great aunt, so my grandfather's sister, who basically moved in to help my parents with three boys in Beirut back back in the, what would have been the, the, the late 50s uh, when my, my oldest brother was born. 
and lived with us till she was 101 years old in Montreal. Oh my God. And she had gone through the, you know, World War One. you know, her family went through a lot of trauma uh, during, during this Armenian genocide, then went to, to France and lived in Greece for a long time and, and then came to Beirut. So this woman who was 75 when I was born and, or maybe 78 and, 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 and 101 when she passed away, uh, was a pretty influential. So that was six of us. And she was kind of the, probably the ancestral wisdom if there was one to be brought to bear because she had gone through many, many, many immigrant experiences. Uh, and my father who was born in, you know, my father was also a product of immigration because he was born in Bulgaria. Communism came in when he was 20 years old. He fled with his parents, went to Turkey, went to Greece, then it settled in Lebanon and then had to pack up everything mid, mid life for him, basically in, the, in, in his uh, 40s uh, and just restart again in a different country. Uh, so all of those things definitely ha helped, you know, provide some degree of, I'd say, mindset plus resourcefulness because very little is going to be given. So that everyone in your family basically had had some sort of unsettling in their life. So the Civil War comes and you, your dad's like, well, you know, I've, I've seen this before. We need to try again. And, and your great aunt is like, we, I know, yeah, we got to try yeah. again. Go somewhere uh, else. You, you sound like you almost know them. That's exactly what happened. In fact, if you go to a, there's an interesting movie called Beirut that was made a few years ago, which captured the time, the, around that time, the U.S. Embassy and how it was involved in various various activities at the time and, and, and there was a lot of a lot of political games being played in different countries that were influencing each other. And suffice it to say that I remember, I mean, that's the movie had scenes in it that I almost felt like I was in because my my dad, who, who was from Bulgaria, and he, so he was not a Lebanese person himself, used to have a lot of friends in the Canadian embassy, Belgian embassy, and then the, the US embassy, and a lot of good friends, just social friends. And, and in hindsight, having watched that movie and having heard since that time, I'm pretty sure that a lot of people knew what was about to happen in Beirut because I think a lot of those people told them, pack up your bags and get out of here. And he, we literally left two months, three months into it. The rest of our community in Beirut were like, why are you leaving? And how can you make such a decision? And this, this, was, this too shall pass. And the, he was told pretty clearly, this is a very long battle, get out. And we literally just got, and so you said unsettled, I call this rootedness. You know, the downside is that I have become unrooted because I was often uprooted. The good side is if you're going to innovate, rooting is not a very useful thing because you got to be comfortable changing the area you work in and you keep kind of and not feeling entitled. So one of the things that you roots give you is a sense of uh, entitlement, false or real. Uh, you don't have any entitlement if you're unrooted. So you, so you miss like not not being rooted. You miss the concept of knowing where your home exactly is, or that feeling of comfort, maybe. But by being unrooted, you're always prepared for change. Yes. It doesn't really affect you as much as it affects other people, and that's a strength in a way. I think so. And I, and I look, I'm, I've maybe you know, I, I often think about words, and and I've always been intrigued by the difference between rationale, which is the reason you do something and rationalization, which is the reason you say why you did that thing. Uh, so I got to be always careful whether this is actually true or not. But at least uh, you know, in hindsight, I think that to some extent, I probably sought out 
the extremes of things that I've ended up working on in terms of the innovations that, that, I've, that I've been involved with for the last 33 years. And as a direct kind of, kind of uh, involved in conception and invention of some of these things, because I was neither put off by the uncertainty nor seeking the expertise that accompanies kind of making making innovations in a space and there's and so you know if you don't know any better you end up doing things in a space that feel like they're not quite the next logical thing to work on and so i found myself over and over being willing to work on things that really were not adjacencies to what had been done before and i do think that's in part uh, maybe in large part due to this 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 unrooted kind of a way of, of exploring idea space. That's, that's, I think these things have definitely merged. When you come to Montreal, um, you know, was that, that must have been a culture shock beyond, beyond just the snow, but I mean, okay, now you're around this Canadian culture, you're surrounded by Canadian kids. Uh, how did you, what are your memories of that? You know, on the one hand, of course, despair at having lost every single friend, every single familiar bakery and familiar soccer field, basketball court, beach that you grow up with and then you find yourself in a city that has no access to water i mean it has a river and 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 you know living in a in an apartment uh building of course fortunately my dad had some some means based on the business that he had in, in beirut but even though he abandoned everything and moved we at least settled in, in in not in a in a financially desperate situation so at least you know we went we, we so i'm with my two brothers we we switched over, went to, to to school in Montreal. It was it was quite ironic because you know little known fact actually I've never really talked about any of this stuff. But when I came to Canada, they ended up concluding that I should skip a grade because what they were forcing us to learn back in, in Beirut were actually the equivalent of one grade ahead. And so and I was probably good enough in the class to to be able to pick up the pieces they thought. And so literally and that was not me. I mean it was just the school system seemed a bit a bit different, and so you know I I I, I you know, adapted and, and yeah culturally everything was different. Uh, snow was just symbolic of the difference. Uh, it was a physical yeah, right. a physical right. instantiation of what it feels like when you've not been in that situation before. Uh, but yeah, I mean it was look it was a it was a hybrid. The good thing about Montreal was that it was a cosmopolitan place, and and there were cultures trying to get along between and languages trying to get along. And there was a bit of this kind of oppressed mentality still in the French Canadians that was playing out, which was not off-putting to us because, you know, we were a minority, Armenians are a minority in, in Lebanon. Everybody is a minority in Lebanon. It's a place of minorities. Um, so, you know, it was, it was interesting. Certainly a lot of, a lot of learning to do. Uh, ended up going to a Jesuit all boys high school. I, you know, of course, that's not my background either, but but it ended up you know, they were very education centric and and a lot of kind of uh, uh, formalisms and kind of knowledge and education was important for them and so then it became also for us. So yeah, it was it was an interesting adaptation. Yeah, and the Jesuits are interesting thinkers. No, they are. They, they, are, yeah, no, they, were, they were very thoughtful and they they kind of for them values and and ethics in in the learning of subjects, not just kind of learning is an important kind of horizontal kind of cut at what is otherwise vertical areas of expertise. And I always appreciated that. Of course, now the 
the Pope is a is, is a Jesuit, so they've kind of had their moment yeah. uh, after all these yeah. years of themselves feeling oppressed within a. So anyway, it's a you can always find that if you look for it. So then uh, you went, you stayed in Montreal and went, you went to McGill, I think, for your undergrad. I went to McGill. I went to McGill. I studied chemical engineering and it was an interesting choice because I actually applied to go to McGill in electrical engineering before I knew what electrical engineering was. And that's what people did who had good grades, I guess. I just kind of went with the flow. This was before computer science was, was, a, was, was kind of a very active. It was just beginning to be active. And so I, I think I was drawn to being at, a, at some version of a cutting edge. And, and uh, but before I even started the the, the school um, in, in in Montreal, the system is you have three years of what they consider college because there's a two-year junior college between high school and, and and university. So it was a three-year program, and I had a chance over the summer to try to figure out what it is one learns in in uh, electrical engineering, and I decided that I should actually try to do something more chemistry-oriented, uh, and and then eventually got drawn to the biological kind of uh, frontier of chemical engineering, which was not even existent at the time. So in 1983, yeah, exactly. yeah that was a completely new field. But it was, you know, chemical engineering, like any other engineering, was a just learning how to think, how to problem solve, how to integrate scientific disciplines, um, you know, materials, you know, flow, you know, flow of heat, flow of electricity, flow of mass, everything. And, and so kind of how to think about merging and, and melding disciplines to try to solve problems. That was a, a very good, a very good starting point. Why were you drawn to the sciences? Was there anyone in your family was, I don't know what your dad did or your mom, were they teachers or scientists or, or was this just something natural in you that you were attracted to science? I think it was interesting. I was, um, I'm sure this is the case for lots and lots of people. So my father was, I'd studied architecture, but by virtue of being, having to go to Lebanon and, and start all over again. He became a business person because there was no way he could practice what he had learned. My mother was a pianist, was a, was a formally trained pianist, just to teach piano. And uh, so science was not in my family. I had my older brother, as I mentioned at the time, uh, well, three years older than me, studied electrical engineering and ended up, uh, um, so I'd say at the time I joined McGill, he was finishing his undergraduate uh, studies. So he was, that was certainly a, a scientific kind of uh, journey for him. He's, as I said later on, gone into physics. Um, but I think what was what was gripping to me was in high school, as is typically the case, I had a professor in physics. I used to loathe biology growing up, so I never took biology. I took chemistry because I had to, but I love physics. And the physics professor, largely because the physics professor was just this extraordinary human being, uh, Professor Mukherjee. Uh, in high school, and he just captivated, you know, anybody that talked to him about the wonders of physics. Uh, this is one of these people who had immigrated from India, uh, had become a high school teacher, and for 15 years had been doing his PhD at night, uh, trying to get a PhD even while he was teaching physics. And, and in fact, quite sadly, I'll mention it, maybe one of your listeners will, or, or will know this. He, he was just an unbelievable human being for me. And ultimately, he got his PhD, and he booked a trip to go back to, this was long after I was had graduated, but this was a sad story. He booked a trip to go back to India for the first time because he had gotten his PhD, and it was an airplane that flew from Canada to India that actually blew up, and, and, and he died as a result of, a, of an airplane accident. Uh, so it was really a devastating 
loss, uh, but it was just, you know, these things happen. But anyway, so he instilled in me. Sorry. Well, was he on his way home to India? Yes, like, I finally have my PhD. Very yes. proud. I'm going to yes. go show my family. Yes. Oh, that's a terrible yes. story. Yeah. Very much yeah. so. It is. Well, but, you know, this is like, but anyway, he was, he was, uh, to me, kind of just so. But I mean, everybody gets touched by by people like that. And in, in my case, it was it was Professor Mukherjee. Uh, so you know that 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 pushed me towards science. He actually was quite good at kind of transmitting the wonder of science. I always thought kind of people people think that in you know in art in artistry there is a certain degree of imagination and and creativity, and somehow in science. There's less of it. I I never understood that. I thought I thought science was just all about wonderment, and and that and if you were willing to wonder in areas that weren't known, you used one set of techniques, and if you were wondering in other areas, then you used a different set of techniques, and and that that was attractive. So any science would have been of interest. And then uh, I know that you went to MIT for your your PhD. So you you left Canada again. You uprooted yourself and went to another country for this. Um, but I was thinking about this too, because, you know, MIT, of course, now is really entrepreneurial. I mean, you, you know, when I go there, I mean, yes, I'm speaking to like startups or translational researchers. So maybe that's self-selecting, but the campus just sort of oozes this yeah. chaotic startup it mindset. Then. It, did it didn't then. What, what, what was it like? Oh, no, it, it was actually kind of a, a technical university with a chip on its shoulder because at least in 83, when I got there, because especially in biology, because it had some phenomenal biologists, but they weren't, you know, Salvador Loria had gotten the Nobel Prize, but David Baltimore and Phil Sharp and all of these folks were not, not known at the time at all, or yet, I mean, Baltimore was getting known. And, and, and they wanted to compete with the best of the, the best. So MIT always had, to me, the ambition of being absolutely the best in, in every single thing it was involved with, or fail trying, and and I think that's driven a lot. And it's culturally, it's not, and in fact, never believing is the best. That's the that's the part that I that I love about MIT. I'll I'll I'll, I'll warn you that I'm I'm on the on the board of trustees there now for a few years, and so I have every yeah. I'm I'm not just saying this as an observer, but I've long believed that I I definitely was attracted there because they you know there's other universities that that I know, including in Boston, where they want to be the best and they believe they are by definition the best that's a little different way of that's a different relationship with best uh and, and mit always had this self-effacing way so i was drawn to to it um not because of any entrepreneurial things in fact i had no entrepreneurial thoughts at the time but because i was i was interested in chemical engineering to work on whatever happened to be the most cutting edge part of chemical engineering and there were two or three areas at the time. One was semiconductor processing, which was drawing chemical engineers for the first time into making kind of smaller and smaller feature controlled chemical reactions and chemical vapor deposition was causing chemical engineers to enter the, the making of, of silicon chips. The second was the use of what eventually has been um, machine learning, but at the time was viewed as AI as it related to doing control of of large complex operations. So kind of the application of sophisticated algorithms uh, and neural nets and the like in, in the control of chemical processes. And then the third was biotechnology, which in 1983, when I, when I got my undergraduate degree, 
was just beginning to enter the, the broader conscious and engineers were not working on this. There were microbiologists who were kind of applied microbiologists who were, who were kind of getting involved in making uh, bacterial fermentations happen, but that was about it. And, mm -hmm. and I ended up coming to MIT because it had all three of those variants of chemical engineering because it was one of the premier departments. And yeah, so you, I think you, you got your PhD in um, biochemical engineering, yeah. And then, yes. but you're still, you're still pretty young, 24 or something like that. 24, yes. And then, but I, now tell me where I'm wrong, but I think from that point you founded Perceptive. Yes. So, so the, the story there is, is, is again, you know, some of these things where you, you kind of take a, you get, you get lucky in, in human interaction. So the, for me, the kind of my change of, of arc towards an entrepreneurial kind of journey which has been what I've done since basically, was in 1985. Before then, you know, I was probably equally restless, equally curious, but somewhat trying to get better and better at what I was doing, but not with a view. The, the choices were you worked as an, you, you got into academia or you went and worked for Merck or, or DuPont or, you know, one of the large companies because that's what well-trained uh, pedigreed engineering PhDs did. Uh, and so, uh, but in 1985, I had a chance encounter. I was at an NSF meeting in Washington, D.C., where the, MI, I don't know why MIT had sent me, I guess there was not that many people in biotechnology at the time, and this was a conference on, on competitiveness, and this was the mm -hmm. time when the U.S. was worried that Japan was going to clean its clock when it came to yeah. technological innovation, and there was all these alarmed meetings taking place, uh, and, and, and I ended up being sent by my professor to go to this meeting where there was going to be all sorts of discussions about the frontiers and bio and other kinds of fields. And, and at this event, at a, at a lunch, I happened to sit next to somebody and I got enough courage to ask him what he did. And he started telling me how he and another friend of his had, had uh, years and years ago been trained as a new breed of engineer at the time called electronic engineers and that it's, there was a shift in the power engineering departments to electronic engineers, and that then led to electrical engineers, and how he and this friend of his had graduated, because I was a PhD, so I was asking him kind of how he ended up doing what he's doing, uh, graduated and decided that all these new breed of engineers are gonna have to make devices at the time, analog circuitry, and, and he, they thought of making instruments that, that their friends could use to design the things. They didn't know what they were gonna design, but the circuitry that they were gonna work on. And so they made oscilloscopes in their garage and then grew a company out of that. And, and I, I found that, you know, linearly, I was thinking, well, I'm a studying to be a new breed of engineer. And, you know, I don't know what people are going to make with this new breed of engineering, but I know they're going to need instruments and tools. And I was thinking of all the tools that I ended up using in, in my lab work to purify proteins, analyze proteins, you know, synthesize things. And, and I was kind of mapping it, saying, well, it's kind of interesting. It's a similar moment in time, you know, this many decades later. And, and so then I, I asked him who he was. I had no idea who he was. And it was David Packard from Hewlett Packard. And, and so I had no idea who he was, never heard his name before. I heard of Hewlett Packard. I didn't yeah. think Hewlett Packard was making oscilloscopes, which they were not at the time. But, you know, he then spent another hour talking to me about, he said, look, you know, I said, well, what do I have to learn? And he said, well, this is stuff that you can't really learn. But if you really should learn how to manage innovation and how to manage people and how to think about value and things that they don't teach you 
in, in engineering school. So in fact, I came back to MIT and I went to the Sloan School, which was the business school at MIT and tried to, you know, kind of uh, talk my way into taking courses. At the time, they had huge barriers to any engineering or science students taking business courses, uh, both from the business side and from the engineering side, because they thought there was a, an incompatibility in language and in focus, and you know, it would yeah. drag people down. So I ended up taking a few courses, three of them, at, as, as a PhD student, which was unusual at the time. And that's how I, and then I literally started thinking, you know, pretty, pretty specifically about how to, how to innovate to make new tools for this new breed of engineers. So you, you were like, well, there's yeah. kind of two career paths for me. One is joining DuPont or Merck. One is staying in academia. And the first time someone else said, well, there's a third way, you're like, that's the way I'm going to do it. Yes. And, and it was intriguing to me because I think it spoke to my kind of probably risk tolerance, although I probably didn't know the word risk or tolerance back then, but also just personality. I kind of figured, you know, and it, it, was, it was in hindsight, it was a look, 30 years later, 33 years later, uh, it's definitely it's what people do. But back then, people didn't do that at all, let alone young people, let alone immigrants, because I then quickly met, met entrepreneurs, and they were all white, middle-aged men who had worked in big jobs before, and once they had made enough money, had kind of been tapped on the shoulder by venture capitalists to come in and start a company in an area. And, and I was none of those. Well, I was male, but I was none of the rest. And so, yeah. But, the, but to do that as a middle-aged man who's sort of um, already had a career isn't all that risky, though, right? You've already had your career at some point, and you've got, already got enough money in the bank, and now someone has tapped you, as you said, to start a company. That isn't all that risky versus I'm going to do this right out of school. I'm only 25 years old. You know, that is a risk. Well, it's true, although I had convinced myself that the converse would be a bigger risk because you actually have a reputation you can squander and you have you have a family and, and, and a kind of trajectory that is really being exposed. Whereas I thought I had little to lose. Um, yeah. and, I, and look, I, I've often found when you're doing, when you're taking leaps of faith, I don't mean leaps of faith in the Jesuit sense of the word, but literally leaps of faith in the expression, um, you actually, you know, to some extent, lack of clairvoyance is helpful because if you really know what the act of leaping is and what might happen when you land, et cetera, you may never make the leap. And, and I think that youth has a lot going for it in that respect. Yeah. So yeah. I, I do think that I probably was willing to take a bigger leap than what otherwise would have been uh, logical. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. How did you start the company? Did you, how did you hire your team? Did you need funding to start it? I mean, obviously with these tools, the runway to profit isn't as long as if you're trying to develop a therapeutic, I suppose, but, but um, still. Well, look, I mean, I, I ended up, you know, it's all about people, obviously. So I, I had met, so I, I, after, after the, the kind of the intervening 85 to 87 period, I kind of spent some amount of time trying to think about all the technologies that I was using, which one did I feel even competent in doing anything about. And, and I kind of had, had dreamt up this, this technology, even while I was a graduate student, which was called Continuous Affinity Recycle Extraction. Nobody knows about it because it's fairly arcane. And it, uh, care is what it stood for. And it was a way to do affinity purification of proteins in a more industrial way. So it was a continuous system instead of a column. And, and I could show that you could have much higher throughput of proteins if you're going to purify proteins this way. And so, uh, of course, I took that. That was not what the object of my PhD thesis was. That was a technique that I had developed to be able to purify proteins that I was studying. But then I thought, well, maybe I could take that and build a process technology around that. And that was the original concept that, that I wrote a business plan on and, and tried to kind of get people at, at the business school to look at, as well as a couple of my professors at MIT. Uh, I was working with, with a professor named Danny Wong, who had been involved in the forming of Biogen. And so I talked to him about it. Charlie Cooney is another professor at MIT. Uh, who was involved in the formation of Genzyme, and he was a consultant to Genentech, so talk to him about it, some normal ways that initially you, you do these things. In fact, Bob Langer was not Bob Langer back then. Bob Langer is a good colleague and friend now, but he was oh, yeah. a fairly young professor at the time. He was not starting companies, but I knew him because he was involved. He was one of, the, one of the few people who was doing bio and engineering, and he was a, a bit of a role model. And so, and so the, way, the way it got started is that I actually... At, at, a, at a conference I went to, met a professor, another professor at Purdue University, his name is Fred Rainier, and he was a phenomenal, uh, inventive, analytical chemist uh, working in the field of chromatography. And so I shared some of my ideas with him. He shared some ideas he had about how to design the particles that one uses to do chromatography, not the process itself. So the two of us kind of started charting it up. And uh, just, you know, me as a graduate student, but with interest in, in potentially pursuing some a startup of some sort. And then there was a third person, Bob Dean, who was a well uh, uh, kind of experienced uh, uh, entrepreneur, a mechanical engineer in his case, who had started a number of companies outside of bio and had most recently started a company in the cell culture field where he was making resins on which cells were growing, et cetera. And, and, and basically, my professor introduced me to Bob Dean, uh, and, 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 and basically the three of us kind of got together, and, and Bob wanted to find a new project to work on, and he was kind of at the, at the tail end of his career, entrepreneurially, he'd been doing it for 35 years already. Fred was an academic at Purdue University who wasn't going to leave, but was interested in 
So the you know kind of I put the, the two of them together into what was basically a paper company. Uh, it used to be called Synosis, stood for Synthesis of Systems. Don't tell me why, purification systems. It was kind of sounded like a disease. People told me later to change the name because it sounded like a disease, so we changed it to Perceptive. And, and, and within the context of the company, started kind of thinking about what could be true innovations that beyond the initial starting point might be uh, might represent breakthroughs. And, and, and we actually did work on a whole new design of particles that, that then became called perfusion chromatography. That was our beginning kind of a trajectory. So that's how we got started. And I mean, you ran the company for 10 years. Ran the company for 10 years in the very beginning, hired a couple of people to, to provide kind of a leadership, uh, just so I would learn how to do this as well. I was chairman the whole time and then, and then I stepped in again as CEO, but it was over a 10 year period. I should tell you that the beginnings, I don't know why I, I probably attract these types of moments, but started right when the stock market crashed. So October of 1987, there's a famous Black Monday when NASDAQ crashed. Yeah. You know, it was the first time since the depression that NASDAQ had crashed or Dow had crashed. Uh, and uh, it was an interesting time to get started because the whole financial world was devastated and I was completely oblivious. I had no idea why why the Dow Industrials and the NASDAQ index would have anything to do with the startup. But you realize then just how interconnected risk capital is to sentiment. I mean, and I think it sold for, uh, it's a, it's a Perkin Elmer for 360 million or something like that, right? Which is a at nice- At the time, yes. Which was yeah, a lot of yeah. money at the time, yes. Yep. And you had a handful of other startups at the same time? Chemgenics, well, so Antigenics. Yeah. Yeah, so there was there was in the nine in the mid nineties, by the time Perceptive started functioning as a as a bit more of a professionally run company, it was already now maybe two three hundred people. Uh, at the end, we were about eight hundred fifty people, but but it was growing, and we were we had just begun to get into the mass spectrometry field. So I I started kind of getting interested in 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 figuring out ways to make some of the technologies we we had a. Phenomenal R&D group. We had just a, you know, I don't know, 80, 90 PhDs, a large R&D organization. It was unusual for an instrument company, let alone any biotech company at the time. There were not very many biotech companies, and so we were doing inventions in chromatography and capillectrophesis, which was new, mass spectrometry, DNA synthesis, peptide synthesis. I mean, we had a huge number of activities, all aimed at better and better tools. Uh, and 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 so, so and then I realized as a public company, the company that took the company public in 1992, that in our our shareholders couldn't care less about these things. They just wanted the core business to grow and and to be profitable. And I was taking all the money and putting it back into doing better and better products. And so and, and so what ended up happening is I started realizing that there was maybe a possibility of taking some of these technologies and spinning them out. And so, and so that is what Chemgenics was. Then at the time, there were a couple of companies being started that were technologically related to one of the many things Perceptive did. So I got involved as a co-founder in a couple of companies, one in diagnostics, one in vaccines. And, and, then, and then I kind of found myself, even though I was still CEO and trying to grow Perceptive, but I found myself interested more and more in what I came to view as parallel entrepreneurship instead of serial entrepreneurship, because I didn't want to leave my job to do another company, another company. 
but I also was drawn to the value creation you could make by taking, by going from nothing to something as opposed to something to three times that something. Yeah, it's a, so I mean, what's when I look at the the history, your history, what's kind of shocking is how quickly you hit the ground running like that, right out of your PhD, started a company, and even while that company's growing, you're spinning things out. Uh, well, I mean, like I said, you know, you learn long ago, ignorance is bliss. So I, I then I'm not being self-effacing. I really don't. There are many, many, many things I did 25 years ago that I would not do now, nor tell my 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 my, my kids to do, uh, because I have, I have kids that were that are now the same age as I was when I started. Not to say that I would make them any less um, kind of or discourage them from taking risks, but those kinds of risks do in hindsight seem extreme. And yeah. you know, I think it was largely not not necessarily being as as focused on being thoughtful and, and planful. I mean, look, we haven't talked about it, but I'll tell you what has over time kind of also emerged in my in my and I'm trying to understand all this is is if just the degree to which I was being drawn to the power of Darwinian evolution as a thought process. And and in fact when I started flagship, that was the central mechanism I planned to use to be able to scale and systematize innovation in, in itself, which is just very much this notion that if you take a a, a multi-component object could be thought could be you know a watch it could be a computer it could be anything but a multi-component object and create variation and apply selection in an iterative fashion you get novelty you get extreme novelty in ways that our brains can't really comprehend because of the combinatorial nature of the of the of the components that when recombined could create massive diversity uh, those things that you might like you go well, where do you why does one apply that to this? Um, if I had studied evolution as, as, a, as a graduate student or undergraduate student, I probably wouldn't have thought of this. But because I didn't, and because I had to go and try to figure out what is all this about, it's really been a, 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 one of the main driving forces in my belief of where an alternative place where innovation come from. I think much of novelty, whether it's in consumer goods and songs and human endeavor, is nothing more than that. Well, let, let me ask, so in that analogy, and I look at the flagship portfolio, are the watches each portfolio company? Each or are platform. the watches inside? Both of them. Each it's platform. Recursive. But the platforms that we invent are very much, as, 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 as uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure you've seen, but these are very much not things that are iterations of what exists, but rather are projections of what could exist that then in an iterative uh, way our descendants are, are discovered that become more and more and more reasonable seeming. And that's the starting point for what we work on, not an experiment that shows some incremental improvement and then we try to go start a company around it. So I, I'm just, I'm connecting it to kind of like, that you said, well, you know, you did this early on and you did this quickly. Um, if you think you have to be sure of something before you do it, it takes you a long time to do it because you're unsure of so much. If you feel like you'll figure it out, and you you know emergence maybe is the word to think about it. I think emergence is a powerful uh, human activity. If only people would uh, surrender 
to, to, to accepting the risks of it versus feeling like, well, wait a minute, is the next step going to work? And how do I know it's going to work? And let me ask a lot of people to give me advice as to whether it's going to work or not. And by, the, by that time, somebody else who doesn't have to wait for that has, is, is way, way advanced. But when you, when you look at Perceptive and then the four companies that came out of there, Antigenics, Chemgenics, um, you had two go public and two that were bought, I think. So that's kind of five companies that all would have achieved an exit of some sort. And Perceptive went public before that. So when you look back, did you, I mean, was that sort of like a false sense of this is really easy? I don't think that I thought it was easy along the way, I must say. And I just want to make sure I correct you. These did not all come out of Perceptive. The technologies were related to Perceptive, and one of them came out of Perceptive. But they were all in the yeah. neighborhood of Perceptive, for damn sure. One While you were in Perceptive oh, I was still. In Perceptive. Yeah, so I was in Perceptive, yeah. and yeah. my contributions were. But in one case, it was literally a spin-out uh, of Perceptive. But, um, I mean, look, I, easy, is, easy is probably not the work, because I don't, I don't think I thought any of it was easy. But, I, but look, the 90s were fundamentally an easier time to, to create or to get rewarded for innovation in this space, because everything we worked on was the first time. Right, so you know when you did chemical genomics, there was no chemical genomics happening. When you did personalized cancer vaccines, there was nobody doing that. When you did stool-based diagnostics, there was nobody doing that. So every single thing was there was no precedent because everything that came before was recombinant proteins and then antibodies. So it was just the kind of like in natural evolution. Actually, there are periods of diversification, and then there's periods of long periods of kind of conserved things until something kind of explodes again. So I would say in the 90s, both the financial markets and the sheer novelty of it was such that, in, at least in my experience, and I think in others, it was relatively easier to have an impact. Conversely, between 2000 and 2010, it was unusually hard to have an impact because people basically went from you know, glass, glass half full to glass mostly empty, didn't matter how much liquid you had in it. And, and you had to continually, or glass with a hole in it, but you had to continually fill it for people to believe anything you were saying. And then it's kind of equilibrated since. So th now this makes like perfect sense to me. So this concept of, you said paranoid optimism, right? Which with every company that you're working on, you're thinking it's, something's probably gonna go wrong. That's the paranoia, but we'll figure it out. That's the optimism. And you apply that to every company. Well, yeah, that's, that's at least a balancing force. Of, of the tendencies to become either overly paranoid that nothing's going to work, in which case you don't even try, or too overly optimistic, which means that you know you'll figure everything out without this fear factor. And so the, the the look, the fear factor is is respecting uncertainty and recognizing the fact that the underlying conditions are constantly changing. And so you just have to kind of adapt and 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 respond. And no business plan, no strategy, no forethought can actually eliminate that, except if you go one foot away from where you are intellectually. So one of the things I'll tell you is that I think, you know, some other time I'm happy to talk more about this, but I, I think that much of innovation is heavily limited by reasonableness. I think we, we live in a scientific fields are this way, most of what humans do is all about how reasonable is what you're saying. And, and my, one of the other challenge, challenges that I kind of think a lot about is 
why do people expect extraordinary results from reasonable people doing reasonable things? In which world should there be extraordinary outcomes? And yet everybody's looking for extraordinary outcomes, but they constantly want to figure out whether every single step is the right, reasonable step. People go ask key opinion leaders, they do what's called due diligence, and there's this massive crowdsourced reasonableness filter, and yet they expect extraordinary results. And I learned a long time ago that if you're aspiring to extraordinary results, you have got to be comfortable being unreasonable and persistently so. So you might say, well, then, if you're just unreasonable, does that mean you get extraordinary results? And of course, not, not the case. It's not, it's right, not right, uh, right. reversible. So that's where the evolutionary approach comes in, because you first project yourself to things that, to, to places where people consider completely unreasonable in terms of what you're proposing to do or how you're proposing to do it. But then what makes you survive is recognizing that when you get there, you can do variation and selection looking for what survives. And that then ends up being the thing that we create companies around. Every single one of the companies we've created has the exact same genesis. I mean, I just love that connection to your family line where again and again, we've got to leave this country, we've got to leave this country. Now this government is falling apart. That's the paranoia. And then, but we'll figure it out. That's the optimism. Of course, you don't know that you'll figure it out. Maybe that's just something you tell the children so that they're not terrified. You don't know that it's going to be okay in the end. But yeah, those two things work in tandem to, uh, to build companies. Yeah, it's fascinating. Well, I mean, look, you mean, by definition, the, you know, yeah, I mean, survive, survivors write the story and therefore for them, they have survived. It does work and out, so, right. And, 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 and it has worked out, doesn't mean it will continue to work out. And presumably some of the factors that go into that survivalist mindset uh, at least might, not in every single case, but might increase the odds of further survival. One of the other things though, just for your audience to keep in mind, is another thing I've learned though, to this layers of layers of these, is that survival, while it is one of the most, you know, kind of striking features of, of startups and of innovation, and of, for that matter, any kind of uh, competitive activity or difficulty, survival is, is necessary, but not sufficient to thriving. And that's another mistake people make, is that if you keep surviving, you will thrive. And of course, in the startup world, that's not true. If you keep surviving, you will have survived. And that yeah. gives you the opportunity to thrive. But one of the things we spend a lot of time with the flagship trying to understand is, what are the things that lead to thriving, whether it's the nature of what you're working on or the people are working on it, or the, and then what, are, what, what decisions tie thriving and surviving, usually in the opposite direction. In other words, you do something that increases your odds of thriving, but at the risk of surviving, and vice versa. You do things that you use to survive, and it takes away 95% of your upside. And so where, how do you separate those things, and how do you ensure that you're doing both, surviving and thriving? separate activities. And you, you said this thing earlier, this is, this goes back to your launching perceptive in 84 or whatever, 87, when, Black yeah. Monday, 87, when Black Monday happened. And you you know, you didn't really realize that if the markets closed down, then that dries up venture capital and the exit's gone or whatever. And when, when not only the U S but the sort of world began to go into lockdown for this virus, you know, my first thought was, well, okay, there go the markets and there go the exits. And we may see venture money start to dry up. Now that has not been the case yet. 
which was has been, I mean, I know we're only six months in, but I found that surprising. What do you think about that? Well, um, I think that if this was a, I don't know, a, a pandemic of, of, of automation or some, something, let's say cars all of a sudden were unsafe or, or clothes were, or, or, or all of a sudden disintegrating, I'm just making it up, then, then I don't think biotechnology would be a beneficiary. But the reality is it so happens that it is our, 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 our lives, which is a biological concept, that are threatened by a communicable disease, which is a biological concept, which we can counteract with biological as well as behavioral modifications. And so, you know, it just so happens that the very science that we're, we're exploring and deploying towards health solutions, whether they're diagnostics or therapeutics, happens to be the center of attention of this pandemic. So I never thought that venture capital in this field or risk capital would diminish. Uh, and we fairly early on thought that there would be a, uh, you know, if, depending on how it works out, uh, there may be increasing attention. I never thought that every TV station, even ESPN, would be talking about whether antibodies last a long time and whether the diagnostic testing, whether positive predictive value of X. So, you know, or Vogue, you know, all, the, all these magazines have had some aspect to the story. Uh, that is an extent that I that is that is unforeseeable, but not biology life science would come of age during this uh, period. I, I have no doubt, and, I, and it's it's happening, and it'll have long long term consequences depending on how society deals with it. One of the things that I've recently written about and I'm working pretty heavily on is that I I think what should come out of this is a fundamental rethink of what healthcare is, and and I I. In a nutshell, I'll tell you kind of the beginning thoughts of that is that I would contend that healthcare is a euphemism, complete euphemism. It should really be called sick care. And the reason you know that is because you got to be good and sick to get any of it. Uh, we spend 97% of our healthcare dollars on things that are to detect and treat disease, not up anything upstream of that. Uh, and yet we deal with our physical security with an incredible degree of caution and we demand to be safe from our government and they can violate our privacy all they want to deliver us security and our health not that way at all we basically assume we're going to get sick and die and so we wait till we get diagnosed with something and then we want gobs of money spent trying to now secure our health which largely is too late this this uh i i came across something that you said in the uh, it was like a q a that you did within the i think armenian mirror and spectator or mirror spectator and i thought you said something really interesting you said that you know we we deal with the flu the annual flu as a just a way of life here comes the flu where you're going to get your vaccine and every year the flu will actually you know it'll kill some immune compromised people it'll, it'll kill some of the elderly of course but that's just sort of the way that we operate but for some reason we're treating this this pandemic as a, I think you call it a terrorist attack. And you're like, why the difference? Yeah, and, and I think it's because <clears throat> we're beginning to realize that we've been super fatalistic about it. And now that it actually reached a, 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 a shortness of the time it took for the people to start dying and the reach got exposed, you know, but, but actually the underlying things that allowed the flu to exist is what's allowing this to exist and spread. And so I, I'd hate for us to go back to accepting the flu as though that's okay. That amount of the street crime is okay, but terrorism, that's a, that's a real offense. I think we should get rid of 
basically all crime. And I think we can in this analogy when it comes to thinking about security. And health security, health security is not wellness. <clears throat> wellness to me precedes health security. Health security is when we are being protected against you know, uh, predictable outcomes of our genetics, our age, our lifestyle that, that we then have to watch in, intensely for. And so, you know, I, I, I tell people what I envision is turning on the television. There won't be any television 20 years from now, but 20 years from now and seeing an ad that is embellishing the beauty of a pre-patient journey, not a patient journey. Today, you turn on television and you feel like you're a superstar because you're watching somebody who's got psoriasis or who's got cancer and they glorify it like, oh my God, this patient journey is such a wonderful thing. I, for one, would rather be stuck on a pre-patient journey. And I'd rather not go on one of these glorious cruise ships that take you on a patient journey. And yet that yeah. seems like an illogical statement this in 2020. Uh, that I hope will change. <clears throat> Yeah. I mean, do you think that we are, you know, I was just talking to this about this with somebody, you know, we, we weren't accustomed to wearing masks. And of course, now we're very accustomed to wearing masks. And he was saying that he can't imagine flying again without wearing a mask because every time he flies, especially if it's international, you come, you come back with a cold. He's like, why won't I wear a mask? Yeah, and that's kind of like what you're saying. It's a little more preventative as opposed to just waiting until you get the thing and then dealing with it. Yeah. And, and I'd like the government to spend some money <clears throat> trying to survey for these things and detect these things and 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 be prepared with with repertoires of of of, of vaccines or antibodies or two predictable things. I mean, we can we can predict. You can predict what types of changes will lead to to the spread of some of these diseases. And why don't we just spend some money? And another extreme example is nuclear stockpiles. We spent billions of dollars coming up with weapons that we expect never to use as a deterrence, right? How much money do we spend stockpiling anything that has anything to do with a pandemic? The answer is approximately zero. And yeah, right. you know, so it's just the difference is unbelievable. We're fatalistic towards yeah. our health, but we are incredibly insistent of being given physical security. Therein lies, yeah. in my view, a something that needs to be re, re, reconsidered. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I want to ask this too. So you know, before, when the year started, uh, the the general opinion of the biopharma industry was really low, and this is basically centered around pricing, uh, the, you know, pricing of drugs. And if for sure, that was going to be a big topic in the presidential election here in the U.S. And I'm wondering if you think that that perception has begun to change a little bit because there's such a focus on the biopharma industry for vaccines and therapies against the pandemic, against COVID. I think it's changed somewhat, but I don't know how long-term that change will be because at the end of the day, the pharma industry, more so than the biotech industry, is generally, you know, still selling a majority of drugs that don't work on most of the people that take them. And you know, they work on some and the newer drugs are more specific. But but the reality is that, you know, how I keep hearing how vaccines have to be cheap because you're giving them to a lot of people who don't need them. Well, drugs also are being given to a lot of people who don't benefit from them, but they're still being charged as though they are getting the benefit. And so I think that's yeah. an unsustainable model. I think value has to come into the equation with, with pharmaceutical pricing. You know, we, so I think those issues aren't going to go away, but you're right. There's a bit of a reprieve because, you know, right now, you know, every pharmaceutical company has entered this, you know, kind of this so-called race, which, which is an awful description of what we're engaged with. Yeah. Um, 
And so, and so, yeah, I think there'll be a period of time. And plus, they're, you know, these big companies are spending enormous amounts of money uh, on communications just for that reason. Um, so I don't think too many politicians are going to be uh, going out and speaking against, you know, the savior kind of aspect of this industry right now. Now, will that last very long time? How long will people remember this? I don't know. Uh, one, just one final yeah. thing I want to ask you. So you've been running flagship for about 20 years, yeah. I guess. Yeah, 20. And there are, what, 40 companies that have been spun out of there? At least 40. Oh, no, there's uh, probably 90 now. Uh, there's 40 90, that, are current, that are probably current, but there's, yeah, there's probably over time. Um, 90. About 90, yeah. So what, what do you think the next 20 years will look like? I mean, given that the industry is going to continue to change the way that it has in the past 20 years, will they still? Will you still be able to spin them out at that rate? We saw the success at that well, rate. Well, I don't know about I don't know about success because I mean I, I think that's just the way you measure it. But if success is the ability to conceive of platforms that are disconnected with current reality, offer some pretty significant potential to change, to to impact and with new solutions, health or sustainability, which is another area that we work in. Um, then I, I don't see why that's a finite space. I don't think that's, you know, that's, let's just put it this way. If, you know, I would draw everything that we know and that we do in a circle, and then I would draw a concentric ring around that, which represents the adjacencies. Mm -hmm. And I would say that most current innovation goes after the adjacencies of what already exists, the first circle. Yeah. Outside of that is the, is the realm of the possible, which to everybody inside the, first circle or the concentric circle is utterly unreasonable. And so, and in fact, that is the case because if you look backwards, the circle that preceded the current circle was much smaller and it was within the first circle. So I, I kind of view just circle being a, a, random, a random geometry, but I view kind of this ever expanding frontier of scientific knowledge or application or technology as this gradualistic act where resources go into expanding the boundary at a finite rate, driven by the rate of success you have in spending the resource to make progress, coupled with people's expectation that what you're proposing was reasonable. That's kind of the, the fusion of the boundary. Nothing takes into account what happens if you can escape that and kind of come backwards and say, how can I, what can I do outside of this that relates to what, what problems we perceive today? And I would argue that that is not a bounded space. That is not a bounded space. Now, you know, can you do with as many, so flagship is just an institutional uh, model, an institutional system that is experimental 20 years into its existence. Uh, I'm not sure there are people that are doing what we're doing in the sense of the sheer inventions that lead to companies, that lead to products, as opposed to finding bits and pieces of science and then building, commercializing those. But, but I sure hope that flagship will be doing this 20 years from now and that there will be many, many other people adapting, improving, and doing even bigger things. In, in this analogy, each company is a new circle. In this analogy, each company, well, it's, yeah, I mean, I'm not thinking of it that way. My circle is the sum total of what's known about any given space or what exists. So right. there's a circle for cancer, there's a circle for breast cancer, there's a circle for for you know diseases of neoplastic you know, kind of origin. So there's different. So my point though is that generally, if you define the here and now with you bound it, then draw. Now you're right. 
each new company creates its own little circle that over time yeah. itself is going to grow. And eventually some of these will merge because if we're right, like in the case of Moderna, when we started working on RNA for a patient generated therapeutic, nobody was suggesting or working or any of that. There are people who worked on RNA modifications before. There are people who were working on, you know, siRNA and lots of other things, but not that. But over time, that circle has gotten both credible enough and big enough that the current frontier now encompasses that so that every pharmaceutical company is now working on mRNA and, and a lot of academics who initially used to say, this is never going to be a therapeutic, and they still, a lot of them still do, now are beginning to yeah. kind of hope that it might be. Who knows if it will be or not? That's still the jury's out. So yes, there are these different circles of reality that merge and, and, and coalesce and fuse together. Uh, perfect. Thank you for taking the time. I really, really enjoyed the talk. Well, you're an interesting, uh, you're an interesting person to talk to. It was, it was a lot of fun. Thanks for doing a lot of work ahead of time. Okay, there it is. Your first rounders podcast with Nubar Fan. Uh, do you like how I left the compliment in at the end? I couldn't. I didn't know what else to do. I couldn't just have me say thank you and drop it right there without his response. So yeah, I left it in. I left it in. Thank you, Nubar, for for taking the time and and uh, getting on a video screen with me. That was a really really interesting talk. I could have I could have done that for another hour. Thank you to the Midwest Quiet for use of your music in this podcast. Thank you to listeners. What else can I say? It's September 1st. You're listening to this in September. I mean, this year is both dragging on and flying by. Uh, I mean, maybe that's just the way time always goes. That's how life goes, I suppose. Okay, I will talk to you on the next one. Thank you, and goodbye. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? 
And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Discover South Carolina. 